Hello, and welcome to the Nodcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 81st episode of the Nodcast titled The Butcher's Analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 2, in which Tyrion informs Jeno Slint that the company's moving in a different direction, my man. But don't worry, they'll be sure to keep his resume on file. And we have a great legal mind in the fandom on here to discuss this episode that's all about law enforcement and where power comes from. You may know his website, Laws of Ice and Fire, or you may know him from his uh, Twitter handle by the same name, in which he uh, talks about legal issues in Westeros and how we mores like guest right play out. Or you may know him as our very own High Lord Wolf, Wolf in the West. Please welcome to the Nauticast, Lord Clint Esquire. Hi. Uh, thank you, too, for having me. It is uh, a, an honor and a privilege to be on such an illustrious uh, illustrious podcast, uh, especially, you know, after the last two weeks when you had Matt Magician and Adewell. It is also an honor and a privilege to be essentially the Godfather 3 of not a guest. Uh, <laughs> oh, hush. You, you are the army of darkness oh, of not a cast oh. guest. Be still my heart. What's a good third movie? Return of the Jedi. He's the Return of the Jedi, the best of the Jedi of the Star Wars movies. Oh, oh dear Lord. <laughs> I should talk. My favorite one is Revenge of the Sith. I have no right to oh. talk of anybody. Anywho, but uh, no, we were super happy to have you on for this. And I think we've tried to have guests on that have very great things to say about specific topics. And Matt has great things always to say about Jon Snow and his relationship to the Night's Watch. Atwell always has great things to say about how kings use power and how George is expressing that. And you always have great things to say about... The, the laws and mores and, and cultural byways of, of the world of ice and fire. And that very much relates to this chapter. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm excited to, to get into it. And you just released a new essay, which was just fa- fantastic. It was fabulously received by the world. Do you want to talk about that for a minute before we jump to the episode? Uh, sure. You can read it at lawsoficeandfire.com. Uh, it's called uh, Offer Analysis, Bread and Salt. It's basically about how the guest right contract mirrors the actual contracts in the real world. Hmm. Um, and what are the elements of a contract? What are some of the defenses that don't exist for the guest right contract? How it's basically more than a contract. Um, and then I give way too many examples of how it works <laughs> and how it doesn't work. So that was, it was an uh, excellent essay. It was really, really good. It. It's so much fun reading it. And I think, I think one of the, your strengths in writing it, you make lawyerly concepts you know, makes sense to me, a man who can't read. So I think that's really, really good that I appreciate that you made you made you made an essay for the illiterates among us. It was weird when you called me and asked me to read it to you, but I, I did it anyway. <laughs> so thank you, Clint, for joining us. It's gonna be a lot of fun doing this episode on Tyrion 2. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sealer of Bravos, Kelly, War of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Hydegarden, and our two newest members of the Small Council. Again, two new members of the Small Council, Lady Stephanie and Lord Ryan, who have yet to select titles, but we do invite you guys, if you're listening, message us and let us know what you'd like to be called. 
Thank you, as always, to our council, and welcome to Lady Stephanie and Lord Ryan. So, our spoiler we used to say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady Amparo C., a sworn sword patron, who asks, Hi, when listening to the episode on Tyrion 1, I noticed y'all mentioned how Ned is the protagonist of book 1 and Tyrion of book 2. I was wondering who you two would say are the protagonists of the rest of the books. I guess Cersei could be the protagonist of A Feast for Crows, but the other two have so many main characters it's hard for me to even think of just one, especially with Dan since Jon, Danny, and Tyrion are all super prominent in that book. Thanks in advance for answering this. Really love what y'all are doing with this show and enjoying the Clash up so far. Well, thank you very much for that and for the question. And yeah, let's go with uh, guest first. Clint, how, who would you say are the, the protagonists of the, the books going forward after Ned and Tyrion in Game and Clash? So I, I I thought a lot about this, and I actually like looked up the def the dictionary definition of protagonist, um, <laughs> and it's just like the main character, and you know that's a that's a hard question to answer for all of these books, really. But I guess like another way of looking at it is what what is the character that's pushing most of the narrative, hmm. and so for that for Storm, I I I would actually argue that Jon Snow is probably the character that is driving most of the narrative. I mean. You could make an argument for lots of different people for for Storm, especially, I think, and also with dance. But my heart says Catalan because those are my favorite chapters. <laughs> but, I, you know, sure, I, I think it's probably John. And then for Feast, like I, I see why uh, Lady Amara was thinking it would be Cersei. But for me, that's Brienne. Hmm. It's hmm. Brienne who is like driving most of the the pathos and like actually experiencing it. And has I don't know the most compelling neighbor, uh, compelling arc for me in Feast, and then for Dance I I think especially if you look at it in the lens of who's driving most of the narrative that's it's almost got to be Danny yes because it at that point all of these characters are acting specifically because of things that Danny is doing Danny is like you know really off to the side up until a Dance with Dragons. And all of a sudden, she becomes the most important character in the world. Everybody's trying to find her and meet her. Um, and I, so I think that's her book, in my view. I kind of agree with that. I, I don't really have much of a disagreement except for that if Feast and Dance, I would almost say the protagonist for a Feast for Crows is almost Daenerys Targaryen. Because if you look at the Ironborn and the Dornish plot lines, sure. they're all moving in the direction of Daenerys Targaryen. So in the combined Feast and Dance that was originally the way it was supposed to come out, you could see that all these plot that Danny's like the very clear favorite for being the uh, the protagonist there. Uh, Storm, I agree. Yeah, John is definitely the protagonist for, for Storm. You've got Stannis and Davos and John and Melisandre and all these characters interacting with the wall plot and i think that is ultimately where george is setting the climactic struggle for the north as well as the, for the struggle for john snow at least one of the iterations of the struggle for john soul for john snow's soul i agree with totally with what you're saying about danny being this important structuring absence and feast it's also at the very end of the book that's where marwin is going mm -hmm. is, to, is to meet up with danny that ends up being what sam's plot is all about is, is getting the message out to danny the younger more beautiful queen stuff in cersei's plot might be referring to her so that she's tied in in that way and if you put Feast and Dance together into one big reading order, as so many do, then it becomes really clear that Danny is the overarching center of those two books put together because she gets so many chapters and everyone is trying to get to her. And I was kind of thinking about Clash and Storm almost the same way. Mm -hmm. As we've said in a, lot, in a lot of ways, Clash sets up a lot of storylines that pay off in Storm, especially with regards to characters like Tyrion or Stannis. And I was thinking about how Tywin ends up being the clear antagonist of A Storm of Swords as you go along. And obviously he's, his building showdown is, is with Tyrion. So if I put Clash and Storm together, I might say Tyrion is, is the protagonist of that 
chunk of the mm. story that you see his rise and fall politically and at the end he he confronts the the antagonist of this phase of the story but yeah if you took storm on its own definitely john is i think the most consistent driver because a lot of the other big storylines in storm the pov is not in power that the point is they're being converted with powerlessness like Tyrion or jamie or Arya for a lot of the time and john is more of a driver so i think that's a good argument Thank you, Lady Amparo C, for the question. We really appreciate it. If you guys are interested in asking us questions, anyone who is a sworn sword and above patron can ask us questions that we are forced at gunpoint to answer every single episode. Emma is always holding up finger guns to me, or I'm holding up finger guns to him. Our latest patron-only episode, all about changing our minds, the way that Emma and I have, cha- have made changes in terms of things that we believed in the past, is now out for all of you patrons who are at the $5 and above a month level. So we are now on to the synopsis for Clash of Kings, Tyrion 2. Tyrion Lannister watches as Janice Lent, an icky, icky former peasant and son of a butcher, laughs like a man chopping meat. Tyrion asks Janice if he wants more wine, and Janice is like, yeah, fuck yeah, pour the wine, bitches. He asks all peasant-like in Tyrion's mind if whether the wine is from the arbor, but Tyrion tells him quite aristocratically, in my own mind, that is actually a Dornish wine. Janice and Tyrion are dining alone in the small hall in a romantic candle-lit setting. So nice. Tyrion comments that this Dornish wine is rich, unlike most Dornish wines, and Janice says, yeah, it's rich, like me. I'm fucking rich, bitch. Then Janice goes on to call Tyrion a lord, but Tyrion corrects himself, corrects Janice, and says he ain't a lord, though he sure wants to be one. We'll revisit that one come the Storm of Swords Tyrion 1. Just call him Tyrion. So Janice says, sure, whatever, and he continues to gulp down wine, letting it dribble down to his chin and onto his doublet. He was wearing a cloth of gold half-cape fastened with a miniature spear, its point enameled in dark red, and he was well and truly drunk. Tyrion, though, is not drunk. He had been drinking temperately for what seems like the first time in the published narrative. He <laughs> thinks about how he had brought the best chef in King's Landing into his service, and his chef had made quite the exquisite meal. Oxtail soup, summer greens tossed with pecans, grapes, red fennel, crumble cheese, hot crab pie, spice squash, and quails drowned in butter. Sounds delicious, George. Whew, delicious. But he had ensured that every course came with new wine offerings for Lord Slyn. Curious that. Jenna says he might take Tyrion's cook into his service when he heads up to Harrenhal, and Tyrion says that wars have been started for less than that. Regardless, Tyrion has a line of inquiry about this whole Harrenhal business. You're a bold man to take Harrenhal for your seat. Such a grim place, and huge, costly to maintain, and some say cursed as well. Janice says he ain't afraid of curses and shit, and he's a very brave boy just like Tyrion, who Janice senses is brave despite being small. Tyrion says, thanks, and would you mayhaps like some more wine, Lord Janice? No, he wouldn't. Yeah, he would. Tyrion fills his glass to the brim and then brings up some more business. I've been glancing over the names you put forward to take your place as commander of the City Watch. Janice says, yeah, yeah, those are the best boys. You can find them to lead the City Watch in my absence. Especially that Alardim, so loyal, the loyalist. Make him your commander of the City Watch, Janice says. But Tyrion has a different idea. I've been considering Sir Jaslyn Bywater. He's been captain on the Mudgate for three years, and he served with Valor during Bela, during Bela and Greyjoy's rebellion. King Robert knighted him at Pike, and yet his name does not appear on your list. Lord Slint drinks more wine and is like, yeah, Bywater's fine. He's totally fine, but he's so rigid with the moral code. <laughs> Come on. You don't want that type of bro leading the city watch, Tyrion. Pick Allardim instead. He has no moral compass. He'll be great. Didn't he, you know, have some trouble at a brothel recently? Slint says, yeah, he's had some issues, but it was the woman's fault. Girls, am I right? Allard told her to get fucking lost, but she didn't. Still, mothers and children. He might have expected she'd try to save the babe. Tyrion smiled. Have some of this cheese. It goes splendidly with the wine. Tell me, why did you choose Dean for that unhappy task? Slint's all like, weren't you just listening to me? Dude's got no moral compass. He was perfect for the role of killing a baby and her sex worker mother. 
I suppose that's so, said Tyrion, hearing only some only some horror and thinking of Shay and Tysha long ago, and all the other women who had taken his coin and seed over the years. Slint is being extremely oblivious at Tyrion's sudden turn of mood, talking about how the cheese is sharp and how Tyrion should select Allardim, but then Tyrion floats a trial balloon. Whoever the king names will not have an easy time stepping into your armor. I can tell this. Lord Mormont faces the same problem. Janos, an idiot, isn't sure whether Tyrion is, refer- is referring to Mage Mormont, but Tyrion corrects himself and corrects Janos and says that he's thinking of Elsie Gior Mormont from the Night's Watch. And then Tyrion asks Janos to imagine, just just imagine for a second, how great the need of the Night's Watch is. And and then again, we're in this realm of strict imagination here. Just imagine that you and Allardim end up at the Night's Watch. Wouldn't that be crazy? You know, in a pure hypothetical. Janos roars, saying there's small chance of that. But Tyrion says that life is strange. Eddard Stark didn't think he was walking into his death to bail and bail or sept. Hell, even Varys was surprised at that. Lord Janos laughed so hard his gut shook. The spider, he said, knows everything they say. Well, he didn't know that. How could he? Tyrion put the first hint of chill into his tone. He had helped persuade my sister that the Stark should be pardoned on the condition that he take the black. Janos gets all twitchy, but then he says that Joffrey ordered it done, to which Tyrion's like, dude, he's 13 fucking years old. But Janos insists that the age of the king doesn't matter. The king be the king. So Tyrion asks for Janos' sigil class, pinning his cape, and Janos reluctantly hands it over. We have goldsmiths in Lannisport who do better work, Tyrion opined. The red enamel blood is a touch as a shade much, if you don't mind me saying. Tell me, my lord, did you drive the spear into the man's back yourself, or did you only give the command? Janos, bald spot, gets beat red, and for this single, only instant, I sympathize with Janos, given my totally non-existent bald spot going, rat, going red after a bout of lawn mowing. Ahem. Janos says he only gave the command that he would totally do it again, as Ned Stark was a traitor. He even tried to buy Janos the fucking nerve of Lord Stark. Little dreaming he had already been sold. Slint slammed down his wine cup. Are you drunk? If you think I will sit here and have my honor questioned... What honor is that? I do imagine you made a better bargain than Sir Jocelyn, a lordship in a castle for a spear thrust in the back, and you didn't even need to thrust the spear. Tyrion flicks the pin back at Janos, and Lord Slint, who, as I will always remind people every single fucking time he appears in Nerve, will get his frog-faced head chopped off by John in A Dance with Dragons, gets all blustery, not liking Tyrion's tone of voice, and how he's the Lord of Harrenhal and part of a small council, and who the hell are you, Tyrion Lannister? Oh, oh, oh. Tyrion cocked his head sideways. I think you know quite well who I am. How many sons do you have? What are my sons to you, dwarf? Dwarf? His anger flashed. You should have stopped it, imp. I am Tyrion of House Lannister, and someday if you have the sense the gods gave us sea slug, you will drop to your knees and think that it was me you had to deal with and not my lord father. Now, how many sons do you have? Tyrion gets a good look of fear in Janus's eyes as the butcher lord tells Tyrion that he has three sons and a daughter. So Tyrion tells Janus that his kids are going to be fine. The youngest sons will become Lannister squires and maybe knights in time. The oldest will inherit the lordship title, but <laughs> not fucking Harrenhal, you peasant. He'll also need to make marriage arrangements for your daughter. But that leaves the question as to what Tyrion plans to do with Janus himself. The Carrick Summer's Dream sails on the morning tide. Her master tells me she will call at Goldtown the Three Sisters, the Isle of Skagos, and East Watch by the Sea. When you see Lord Commander Mormont, give him my fond regards, and tell him that I have not forgotten the needs of the Night's Watch. I wish you long life and good service, my lord. Janus now realizing that he's not about to get executed, gets all jaw thrusty and yells about how Joffrey is going to hear about this and how many friends he has. He rises from the table and starts walking out of the small hall, throwing open the door and finding a familiar face waiting for him. Lord Slint, Tyrion called out. I believe you know Sir Jocelyn Bywater, our new commander of the city watch. Jocelyn says they've been waiting for Janos and he's to be escorted and he's to be escorted due to it not being safe, which man, you're so fucking bad at your job, Janos. Like the chief of police can't even be escorted safely to the docks. Come on. 
Once Janice is out of the room, Tyrion gives Jocelyn a parchment with the names of six others who need to get aboard that ship for the wall, but Tyrion has a very special surprise for a very special boy who will also be going to the wall. There's one. Deem. Tell the captain, well, it would not be taken amiss if that one should be swept overboard before they reach Eastwatch. <laughs> I'm told those northern waters are very stormy, my lord. Sir Jocelyn bowed, took his leave, his cloak rippling behind him. He trod, and, and I just love this, on Slint's cloth of gold cape on his way out. Beautiful. Tyrion spends some time alone sipping at the wine as servants clear the table. When all the dishes are out of the way, none other than Lord Varos comes gliding into the hall because he's a mermaid. Oh, sweetly done, yes. my good lord. Then why do I have this bitter taste in my mouth? I told them to throw Allardim into the sea. I am surely tempted to do the same with you. Oh, you might be disappointed with the results, my lord Tyrion. The storms come and go. The waves crash overhead. The big fish eat the little fish. And I keep on paddling. Varys asks for a cup of wine, and Tyrion waves at him to get some. Sipping wine together, Tyrion states that Cersei was the one who was behind the murder of the children in the brothels, and Varys titters, letting Tyrion know, letting Tyrion know that Varys knew. Tyrion accuses Varys of not being honest with him, and Varys says, Cersei is your sister. I'm not going to accuse your sister of being a fucking murderer. Come on, Tyrion. But can we, like, put this aside, then you forgive me or something? No, Tyrion snapped. Damn you. Damn her. He cannot touch Cersei, he knew. Not yet. Not even if he'd wanted to. He was far from certain that he did. Yet it rankled to sit here and make a mummer show of justice by punishing the sorry likes of Janoslin and Allardine while his sister continued on her savage course. Tyrion warns Varys to tell him everything that he knows going forward, and Varys says, yeah, no, he knows way, way too much to do that. Tyrion counters that Varys didn't know enough to save this child, and Varys says, well, he didn't think the queen would find a baby and a sex worker much of a threat. She was proper, Tyrion said bitterly. That was enough for Cersei, it would seem. Yes, it is grievous sad, my lord. I must blame myself for the poor, sweet babe and her mother, who was so young and loved the king. Tyrion wonders if the girl really loved Robert, and then because it's Tyrion, he turns that question on himself. Did Shay or Tysha really love him, sex workers that they are, were? Tyrion's not sure if he wants to answer that question, but Tyrion had told Shay that she served him best in bed, and Shay was a bit upset by that. Girls and their lizard brains, am I right, fellas? Oh, Tyrion. Tyrion starts to reach for his wine again, but then he remembers Janos and pushes the wine aside. It does seem my sister was telling the truth about Stark's death. We have my nephew to thank for that. Well, King Joffrey gave the command. Janos slit and Sir Ilan Payne carried out swiftly, without hesitation. <sighs> it's almost as if they expected, yes, we've been over this ground before, without a prophet, a folly, Lord Varys. Varys, probably internally sighing about how he'll have to make do with Tyrion, says that now the City Watch is, quote, in hand, there'll be no more of Joffrey and Cersei's shittery. But Faris is curious about whether the last Red Cloaks will also keep from indulging in more psychopathic behavior. Tyrion says they probably will. The officers are loyal to Castle Rock and Tywin most of all, and Tyrion is here acting in Tywin's place. There's only 100 Crimson Cloaks in King's Landing, and 6,000 Gold Cloaks. And they so totally have the Gold Cloaks at hand, right, Faris? You will find Lord Sir Jassel to be courageous, honorable, obedient, and most grateful. To whom, I wonder? Tyrion did not trust Faris, though there was no denying his value. He knew things beyond a doubt. Why are you so hopeful, my lord Varys? He asked, studying the man's soft hands, the bald powdered face, the slimy little smile. Well, according to Varys, he's in it for king, realm, and Tyrion. Yeah, sure, bud. And you <laughs> serve John, Aaron, and Ned Stark the same way, right? Tyrion asked. Well, he tried to serve them, but he was saddened, probably not, and horrified, probably so, by their deaths. Think how I feel. I'm like to be next. Oh, I think not, Varys said, swirling the wine cup in his hand. Power is a curious thing, my lord. Perchance you have considered the riddle I posed to you on that day in the inn. 
Tyrion had been thinking about the riddle, you know, the one, the king, the priest, the rich man who lives and who dies and who does the sell sort of bay. Tyrion thinks there's no real answer or too many answers, but Varys wants Tyrion to think a little harder about it. He reminds Tyrion that the sellsword is no one in particular. He only has his sword in his hand. The power of life and death, Tyrion interjects. Just so. Yet if it is the swordsman who rules us in truth, why do we pretend our kings hold the power? Why should a strong man with a sword ever obey a child like Joffrey or a wine-sodden oaf like his father? Because these child kings and drunken oafs call other strong men with other swords. Then these, then these swordsmen have the power? Or do they? Whence came their swords? Why do they obey? Varys smiled. Some say knowledge is power. Some tell us that all power comes from the gods. Others say it derives from law. Yet that day on the steps of Baylor Sept, our godly high Septon, and the lawful queen region, and your ever so knowledgeable servant, were as powerless as any cobbler or cooper in the crowd. Who truly killed Eddard Stark, do you think? Joffrey, who gave the command? Sir Ellen Payne, who swung the sword? Or another? Littlefinger? Tyrion cocked his head sideways. Did you mean to answer your damn riddle, or do you think to make my headache worse? Varys smiled. Here then, power resides where men believe it resides. No more and no less. So power is a mummer's trick? A shadow on the wall, Varys murmured. Yet shadows can kill, and oft times a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Tyrion thinks he's growing fond of Varys, and sure, he may kill Varys at some point, but he'll feel real feelings over it. Varys says that's really high praise, and then Tyrion looks, and, and then Tyrion tries looking into Varys' soul. What are you, Varys? Tyrion found he truly wanted to know. A spider, they say. Oh, spiders and informers are seldom loved, my lord. I am but a loyal servant of the realm. Tyrion's all like, uh-huh, okay, sure. But then he talks a little bit about his own status as a half-man, reflecting on the gods being kinder to him than Varys. At least he gets the sex the fuck out of Shay. Is, is that weird phrasing? It's weird. I know it's weird. And Shay wasn't his first or last. But Varys can't do any of that. You have no such hope to sustain you, Lord Varys. Dwarves are the shape of gods, but men make eunuchs. Who cut you, Varys? When and why? Who are you truly? And I just love how George describes Varys' reaction. So, the eunuch's smile never flickered, but his eyes glittered with something that was not laughter. You are kind to ask, my lord, but my tale is long and sad, and we have treasons to discuss. Varys then goes on to talk about some treasons, which I'll bullet point here for brevity's sake, as I know the synopsis is getting super fucking long. One, the master of King's Gallic Whiteheart plays the sale for status. Tyrion decides to give over to Joffrey's quote-unquote justice. The Redblind twins are playing to escape with help. Tyrion says to send the people helping the Redblinds to the Night's Watch. The Redblinds will be left alone. Timmet's killed a ga game gambling cheat in the wine sink. Tyrion says don't worry about it. There's a shit ton of religious fanatics in the city spreading fear about the Red Comet and the Apocalypse. Tyrion says they need to wait for the plotline for a feast for crows. Finally, at a feast hosted by Lady Tanda, a toast was lifted to Joffrey, and Balon Swan made a joke about raising three glasses of wine for the three kings of the realm. Tyrion says jokes are jokes. With that, Varys departs the scene, and Tyrion sits alone, watching the candle burn low. He thinks about how Cersei will take the news of Janos being sent to the Night's Watch, musing that Cersei will be upset, but she won't be able to do anything about it. Besides, Tyrion has his own clansmen guards about him, and a bunch of Celsius recruited by Bronn, so he was safe. Doubtless Eddard Stark thought the same, Tyrion thinks. Finally, in the middle of the night, Tyrion leaves the small hall, bound for his solar. Waiting for him is Bronn. Bronn asks after Janus, and Tyrion says he's off for the wall. Then he thinks that Varys wants Tyrion to believe he's replaced Joffrey's men with his own, but it was more likely he replaced one of Littlefinger's men with one of Varys's. Bronn starts to tell Tyrion about Timmy killing someone, but Tyrion's already heard about it. But Tyrion, you gotta know the details. Shit was crazy. But Tyrion isn't about hearing d details of Timmy pinning a, hands, a man's hands to a table with a, with a dagger. His stomach is already upset. Instead, Tyrion asks Bronn to tell him about his recruitment efforts. So Bronn says he's got three more cell swords in his employ. Tyrion asks how Bronn selects him, and Bronn smiles and says that he looks him, in the ove, looks him over, questions them, asks some resume questions, and then gives him the chance to kill him before Bronn does the same with him. Tyrion's all like, uh, 
But what if they kill you, Bronn? You will be the one you want to hire, Bronn says. Tyrion, filling his liquor and feeling exhausted, looks at Bronn. Tell me, Bronn, if I told you to kill a babe, an infant girl, say, still at her mother's breast, would you do it? Without question? Without question? No. The Celso rubbed thumb and forefinger together. I'd ask how much. And why would I ever need your Allardim, Lord Slint, Tyrion thought. I have a hundred of my own. He wanted to laugh. He wanted to weep. Most of all, he wanted Shay. And that is A Clash of Kings Tyrion 2. I am really amazed at George's work here, and I'm glad we're getting past our introductory previously in A Song of Ice and Fire chapters. And this is my perception, but it's in the second chapters that I feel like that George does really fantastic work in all of the books so far and digging into the thematics at play with his POV characters, thematics that will dominate the rest of, of the book arcs for the various point of view characters we have going on here. But enough of me talking because my throat is dry as fucking desert. What did you guys think of this chapter? As we said when we covered Tyrion 1 a few weeks back, that's a huge sprawling chapter with a lot going on. Tyrion 2 is much easier to take in, at least at first, focused at the start on the question of Janos Slint, but that doesn't mean there's less to talk about. George does a great job of using Tyrion firing Janos as a launching pad to talk more broadly about this book's overarching subject, power and where it comes from. Tyrion is showing off how he understands his position better than Ned Stark ever did, but he's also becoming aware of his limitations in, quote, doing justice, some of which come from outside his growing little coalition, Cersei, and some of which come from within, like Bronn. It's a great chapter to go over with a legally oriented mind, hence Lord Clint Esquire. I'd love to have a chance to discuss what is one of my favorite chapters in all of the series. It's also not coincidentally one of the most lawyerly chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> um, we have we have three parts, basically, in this chapter. In part one is Tyrion the Inquisitor using a very artfully constructed set of questions to get Janos Slint to incriminate himself. And then he uses Janos's guilt to extract even more useful information before sending him on his way. It's like a good deposition. The idea is, here I am asking you about this innocuous subject. The innocuous subject here is, who should take Elfer as captain of the City Watch? But really, I'm getting at a much deeper question, which is your complicity in these moral crimes. He does this in a way that actually gets useful information that, he, that he's able to then turn and use in the future. And then in the second part of this chapter, we get what I consider to be George's central philosophical thesis on the nature of power in the conclusion to Varys's riddle, which was begun in Tyrion 1. I'm going to talk a ton more about this later, but my one way to look at Varys's riddle is similar to Occam's or Hanlon's razors that you might hear talked about when people talk about various arguments. Varys's riddle is George's razor. Hmm. You can use it as a tool to apply when determining who will win a struggle with a struggle for power. Uh, when presented with a choice between two or more claimants for power, and, and all things being equal, we're not talking about you know somebody who has I don't know say three dragons or is willing to. <laughs> absolutely cheat like killing everybody at dinner or assassinate his brother with a shadow baby allegedly, something like that allegedly allegedly right 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 but when presented with a choice between two or more claimants for power the one who ultimately wins will be the one who more people believe in more people believe that power should reside with that person and i'll talk about some examples of that later that's what i how i view george's or 
how I view Varys's riddle as George's razor. And then in the third part of this chapter, we get this coda where Varys gives Tyrion various pieces of information about potential treasons, basically in, to test whether or not Tyrion absorbed the lesson of the riddle. And the answer that we'll get essentially is that Tyrion doesn't get it hmm. yet. Uh, I think he eventually gets it, but it's going to take at least a couple of books before he gets there that he has not internalized how uh, Varys views power and how, how I think George also views power in this uh, in Westeros. I think those are fantastic points all around. I think that when we're talking about the nature of power, that is it, it precisely makes this chapter so fascinating to me. You know, this is a fun chapter, right? Is it fun the right word? I mean, I'm not exactly sure. But before I could tell, like George had a really had a lot of fun writing this chapter from A Clash of Kings, as well as all of Tyrion's chapters from Clash and A Storm of Swords, too. And and I say that specifically because as Adam Whitehead, who's someone who knows George R. R. Martin and got a, an acknowledgement from George in the Dance of Dragons uh, prologue or from the Dance of Dragons acknowledgements, wrote in 2015, he said, quote, when A Clash of Kings was completed, hundreds of pages were left over for A Storm of Swords, including, according to some reports, Tyrion Lannister's complete story arc for the latter. So in the span of essentially two years between the publication of Game and Clash, George wrote an astounding 26 Tyrion chapters. That, that's a lot of chapters, guys. That's like more chapters than the Cautious Tale Book of a Generation. So the question is, why? Why was George so motivated to write so much Tyrion in so short of time, Sam? And I think the answer is found in this chapter. As Emmett and Clint point out, this chapter revolves around the question of power, its meaning, purpose, and utility. I love Clint's idea of George's razor. I can't wait to explore a little bit more with him a little bit. You know, George is invested in political philosophy and he utilizes the vehicle of epic fantasy to talk about the nature of power. And I think it's really, really cool. You know, I've been reading The Hobbit to my youngest daughter. She doesn't understand it. She's only 19 months old. And I love how charming and innocent Tolkien's story is. It's a lovely read and fun adventure story. And George himself, he's a fan of Tolkien and of The Lord of the Rings. But he's also a critical fan, too. He's repeatedly stated his impetus in writing A Song of Ice and Fire was sourced to exploring the philosophical and policy sides of conducting politics and epic fantasy. And it's in that interrogation found most especially in this chapter that George lays the questions and moral quandaries that transcend the genre of epic fantasy and force us to think about power in our own world. In my day job, I'm a lawyer, but in my night job, mm-hmm. I teach kids about the Constitution. And one of the things that I, I talk about a lot with them is the Supreme Court, right? So the Supreme Court, the, the US Supreme Court doesn't have the power to enforce its rulings. It doesn't have the power to uh, the power of the purse that Congress has. And so one of the things that we talk about is how legitimacy is the currency of the court. Basically, you have to believe that the court is legitimate in order for them to have any power whatsoever. That's exactly what Varys is getting at mm. here when he says that power resides where men believe it resides. We as Americans believe that the Supreme Court has power, and so it does. Well said, sir. And I think what makes it so effective in that regard is the structure of it, that he doesn't hit you with the heady concepts up front, that he gives you this case study first and builds his argument from there. And you start start focused on the characters. You start with the singularly unpleasant character of Jano Slint, (laughs) the nominal lord of Harrenhal. Like, he's getting just preposterously drunk at the start of this chapter, and not even in a fun, lay-for-the-party kind of way. <laughs> like, he just keeps repeating phrases and yelling inappropriately. Like, you can imagine him just echoing off the halls of the small hall. And he's friendly at first, like he's saying, Tyrion, you're much like me. I can see that you have a bold way of looking at w- the world. But when Tyrion's lion claws come out as the scene goes on, that's when we see the real Janos Slint, the, the chest-puffing coward who will oh-so-temporarily plague John on the wall. 
Like when he starts calling Tyrion an imp and a dwarf and claiming, I'm the Lord of Harrenhal and a member of the <laughs> King's Council. Or that just the pathetic display when he realizes he's not going to be killed on the spot and starts saying, maybe it's going to be you on the wall. Like ever, like that was ever going to be a possible outcome to this situation. He's just he's just so enraging. And George is designing him that way to, to make you hate him as you go through this scene. Like George describes him at the very beginning of the chapter. He laughs like a man chopping meat. Which is a hideously appropriate given the fate of Bera and her mother that Tyrion gradually uncovers here. And I think you can see George drawing a parallel between Janos and his men to Gregor Clegane and his men. That one of those groups is bringing the pain to the countryside and the other one is bringing the pain to the big city on behalf of the Lannisters. And thinking of Clash of Kings as a whole, it reminds me so much of uh, Chiswick in Harrenhal and that later Arya chapter where he just so casually talks about the rape they committed. And the same thing here. Janos is so casual about this atrocity he had Allardine commit. It's just another day's work, just another bullet point <laughs> in his resume, like executing Ned Stark. And not only that, he wants Deem as his successor. He wants that guy in charge. This is something Stannis will bring up in A Storm of Swords at the Wall. It's not just that Janos is personally awful. It's that he is corrupting the city watch. As, as several folks have argued that uh, Janos is the anti-Davos, right? Rising from the, the streets of King's Landing to lordship in the ear of the king... But Janos does so through corruption and murder and blatant toadyism, rather than Davos's hard truths and unbending loyalty and life-saving mercy and all that good stuff. And while Davos endures like that rock in the sea upon which he survives the Blackwater, Janos's pitiful downfall starts right here. And there is a real catharsis <laughs> in watching him not realize what's happening until it's far too late just because of how unpleasant George frames him from the very beginning. I mean, you George really wants the reader to hate Janice Slint. There's not a single scene in A Song of Ice and Fire which you're like, which which George gives this guy a sympathetic viewpoint, right? And that, that kind of takes me to something that's off script a little bit in which, you know, George is often accused of like having just totally great characters throughout the narrative. And I, I just like scratch my head at this. I'm like, Janice Slint is not great. Gregor Clegane is not great. Like, George has plenty of black and white characters in the narrative. I mean, there's definitely some great characters like your Stannis and your Jamies and other characters, Daenerys Targaryen as well. But I think it's it's important that George does show people, evil people in a setting like this, and evil people in a setting of power. And I think there's an interesting paralleling which George is bringing to the fore in Tyrion's first Storm of Swords chapter, which I talked about in the in the synopsis. Namely, that Tyrion believes that he has the right to be Tywin's successor and will inherit Castle Rock all due to his birth, but he's never going to receive his lordship and the castle from his father, while Janos, you know, he's kind of raised from the ranks of the small folk to become a lord, only to be tossed aside. Ultimately, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the system doesn't want you, the system is going to rig itself not to have you. So it's interesting that in this conversation, when Janos says that Lord Tyrion, that Tyrion immediately corrects him and says, no, I'm not a lord. Just call me Tyrion for now. But, you know, by a storm of swords, you better fucking call me Lord Tyrion, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point that, that that's how kind of Tyrion relates to power. And we see that being brought out here, even as the, he's the more sympathetic figure compared to Janos. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with creating a one-dimensional, unsympathetic character if you use them effectively, if you use them to make a point. There's nothing, not every character has to be a fully-fledged, multi-dimensional protagonist in their own right. That's just unrealistic, especially in a story with a cast of thousands like this. And Janos is used perfectly here to make a point about the system that has empowered such a man and what Tyrion is supposed to do in the face of such a system, as you're saying, Jeff. The way Tyrion... Both makes use of the rules and then especially over the course of Storm finds those rules turned against him is something really mm. interesting. There are lots of, you know, just 
absolute fuckheads uh, <laughs> that, that populate the narrative. And there aren't necessarily, you know, the counterpoints of just pure characters. I mean, maybe you get your Briands and your Davoses, but even them, they have shades of gray. And I think that that, that speaks to a sort of universal truth in that it's much, much easier to be just an absolute fuckhead than it is to be a perfect person. Talking about the structure of this chapter, I think it's a very interesting contrast to Tyrion 1. That was basically taking us step by step through Tyrion's day one on the job. Here he is in front of Mandon Moore. Here he is in the small council room. Here he is afterwards. Tyrion 2 was constructed differently. It's the classic scenario in which our protagonist has done a whole lot of setup work prior to the chapter that we don't know about. And we watch the trap unfold. We gradually become aware of everything Tyrion did to set this up beforehand. Because on first blush, this is just an informal get-to-know-you dinner between the new boss and a long-standing middle manager. That's how Janos Slint is looking at this. This is like his goodbye party before he takes up maybe residence at Harrenhal eventually. And a first-time reader might think Tyrion is simply sussing out the Lord Commander of the City Watch, a fellow member of the Small Council, as Janos says. But, of course, we also know that Tyrion has Tywin's imprimatur to get rid of Janos. And George tosses in plenty of these hints early on in the chapter where Tyrion is really going with this. Tyrion keeps noting how drunk Janos is getting, but not with disapproval. It only helps him that Janos is losing his composure and talking way too much about things he should not be talking about. And that Tyrion himself is largely abstaining. And yeah, given how much Tyrion loves to drink, that's how you know he's taking this very seriously indeed, that he needs to be on his, his A-game. He does indulge in food, though, and I think this is George using food porn, one of his oft-bemoaned weaknesses, for a specific purpose. He's showing Tyrion using the trappings of power, using it as a lure, almost, and a way to get Janos' defenses down. Hence Janos' little comment about stealing Tyrion's cook, and, you know, they laugh about it, but that's how power works. Power plays operate at even the most innocuous of levels, even when it comes down to the dinner table. I also think it's worth noting, and maybe this is just guest right on my brain because I just wrote an <laughs> essay about it, but that of all of the various dishes that were served... Uh, to to Janos, none of them are specifically bread. I guess, mm. arguably crab pie. Maybe Jeff can speak to that as to whether or not crab pie <laughs> not involves bread. Not a thing. If it's a crab cake, I don't think it does. It I does. Don't know. You but, do have bread that goes in crab cake. Uh, all right. Um, but I, I, a point being is that it's at least possible that this meal involves guest right, right? Like he invited him over for a meal. Off the cuff, I think that it probably doesn't for a few different reasons. One, Tyrion is not the lord of this particular castle. He's the hand. It's a little bit different. I don't think that the parties were worried at the beginning of the meal about mutual state conduct. So there wasn't necessarily a meeting of the minds about that. But the thought occurs to me that Tyrion basically arrests this man at the dinner table, which if there were guest right conveyed, would be a little dicey. But do you think like Janos actually asked for salt and bread when he came to, 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 to supper or just... Just kind no, of walked fuck in. No. Yeah, so fuck him. Yeah. He's going to the ball. Exactly. Well, yeah, again, he thought this was a dinner about how awesome Jano Slint is. <laughs> right. He thought that's what the subject of this conversation was going to be. And Tyrion does a great job at first pretending that is indeed what the conversation is about. He's playing obsequious, but if you look closely, all his little comments are actually designed to undercut Janos's position. He protests that he's not a lord like the fancy Lord Slint, but of course Tyrion's power is rooted in casterly rocks, you know, much older and more stable than Harrenhal. And Tyrion calls Janos bold for taking Harrenhal out of his seat because Harrenhal is a cursed white elephant that drags everybody down, including Janos Slint. I love how Tyrion feigns confusion over why Jocelyn Bywater <laughs> isn't on Janos' list when he knows damn well why, because Janos works for Littlefinger and Jocelyn works for Varys. 
and Tyrion asks so, ever so politely for more details regarding what Allardeem did at the brothel. Again, he's pretending ignorance. He's pretending like he needs Genoslint. I'm new in town. I don't know these people, these things, these factions. You have to explain it to me. You have to be the expert. He's appealing to Genos' ego. And of course, Tyrion says the good times aren't going to last. And as the reader, you know, ah, is he talking about the Lannister regime, or is he talking about Janos specifically? The good times are about to come to a screeching halt. I think my favorite example, though, is when he, he praises Janos' valor by saying they need men like him on the wall. <laughs> which almost, when he brings up specifically that Mormont says he needs more men, which we saw that conversation, that almost tips his hand to the first-time audience exactly what's about to happen. But Tyrion, of course, and George disguises it in a compliment, and that keeps the conversation going. It's this really careful balance between... You got to gradually let the audience know what's going on, but make sure it's realistic for Janus to never catch on until it's too late. And I think George just nails that balance. It's such a well-written dialogue scene. And we have that scene from A Game of Thrones where Tyrion says he has a soft spot for bastards, cripples, and broken things. Where you have this scene where Jason Bywater is described as a cripple by Janus Lim because he lost his hand at the battle of, at the Siege of Pike. And that's how he got knighted. And then we have the conversation about the bastard child of Robert Baratheon being killed by Allardeem. We do have to recognize that what's going on here is that, like, Janos Lynn is hitting all of the bad points for Tyrion, all the things he has a soft spot for. Janos is the guy who's being like, yeah, fuck them kids. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that cripple. Like, that's that's basically who 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 Janos Lynn is. And he's, oh, totally loathsome. And Tyrion is – I think Tyrion is a, a morally offended by Janos Lynn, but he's also personally offended by him, too. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you can feel the the sort of animosity uh, coming off of Tyrion when he when he springs the trap, right? Exactly. Once J Tyrion worms his way into Janice's confidence, he starts putting the screws to him. And I love how George paces that transition. And I was I was curious while I was reading this what what feels like the tipping point for you, gentlemen. What feels like the spring the trap moment? Really? I mean, you could argue it's when. Tyrion asks who sent Janos after the babe. Could argue it's when Tyrion first puts that Tywin-esque chill into his voice. That's when Janos first picks up that something is really wrong here. For me, though, this this reread, it felt like this is the moment the mood shifts and that Janos truly dooms himself is, is this. A good commander knows his men, Tyrion. Some are good for one job, some for another. Doing for a babe and her still on the tit, that takes a certain sort. Not every man would do it, even if it was only some whore in her well. I suppose that's so, said Tyrion, hearing only some whore and thinking of Shay and Tysha long ago, and all the other women who had taken his coin and his seed over the years. To go back to the Godfather, yeah, this is where it becomes personal, not strictly business. Tyrion is now putting a face on Janos' victims, and that is fueling his anger and his desire to take Janos down. And it's interesting that this is what drives his anger first and foremost, as opposed to Tywin, who is primarily pissed off about that whole social mobility thing. Tyrion doesn't bring that angle up directly. I mean, he does have it as Jeff noted really well in the synopsis and kind of the subtext, noting that Janos is a, is a butcher's son, cartooning about the wine. So Tyrion's class biases are definitely in there, but I, for me, it felt like the real transition moment is when Tyrion starts feeling this personally about Janos' victims. What do you guys think? So I, I think it's probably a little bit later than that. And this this kind of gets back to my experience in, in depositions where you get to just ask a witness a, you know, a series of questions and this is what Tyrion is doing with, with Janos. Tyrion makes Janos feel comfortable and safe. He gives them wine. Man, I wish I could give my deponents wine <laughs> and get them fucked up. He wants the incriminating information, but first he asks a bunch of very innocuous questions. And then he brings the hammer down. And the first straight questions that he asks are, you know, who ordered the code red, right? Like, who ordered the city watch to kill the babe? 
and Janice refuses to answer. And and this is this is the thing where Janice is like, ha ha ha, I know what you're getting at, Tyrion. I'm not going to answer that question. Janos Slint knows better. And then he thinks that he's got Tyrion figured out, and the danger is over. And of course, Tyrion at this point already knows who ordered the attack on Robert's bastards. It has Cersei's fingerprints on all over it. He just didn't want to realize it. And he knows as soon as Janice refuses to answer the question, he knows it's Cersei. And he confirms that later when he talks to Varys. But so Janice's refusal to answer that doesn't really bother him because he got the information he needed. And in lesser hands, this would be the end of the conversation. This would be the end of the deposition. It's when Tyrion then redirects the questioning to a similar related question of who ordered Ned's death that we get to the real danger that Janos never sees coming. After all, it wasn't Cersei who ordered Ned's execution, so Janos feels like he doesn't have to worry about giving up the incriminating information. He's protecting Cersei, or he's protecting his connection with Cersei. And so he just gives up that information freely. And that style of questioning is an old lawyer's trick, making a witness fear questioning from one flank, which is a feint, and then hitting him with a question from another. You might recognize the style of questioning from the venerated legal text, My Cousin Vinny, uh, which is the greatest lawyer movie of all time, but where mm-hmm. where Vinny Gambino deploys it during the the grits cross. He's asking him questions about how you prepare your grits, but really he's trying to get at you know how long were you doing this thing? And the guy on the stand just says, "Oh, actually, it was longer than twenty minutes." It, it works swimmingly in my cousin Vinny, just as it he- does here too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm divided between both of your perspectives about when Tyrion makes the turn. Which, I mean, I, I like your idea, Emmett. I mean, I think it's like internal for Tyrion when he makes the turn there. But I think when Tyrion starts directing openly the questions back towards Janice about Ned's execution, that you can really see the turn manifesting itself in, in the public setting. And and I do love that that scene where Janice is all like laughing. Oh, Varys didn't see that one coming. Oh, that was hilarious. Right, guys? <laughs> Bros, that was so funny. And Tyrion's like, how could he have possibly fucking seen that, man? Like, come on. Like, and like you, and like George does this, this really cool thing where it says that Tyrion put the first chill into his voice when he says that. And so that to me feels like that Tyrion has almost maybe rehearsed some of this previously before he came into it. So he, when he was putting the chill into his voice, he's, it's not just like emanating from like a, it's not like spouting out from anger. It is a, de- it is a deployment of anger specifically to unnerve Janice Lynn. And I just, I, I love it so much. This, this whole scene is just, just great. I mean, we're getting to even better scenes in a minute, but just the, the Janice Tyrion stuff is really good. It's really good to have a lawyer here to talk about it with us for sure. The same thing Jamie uses Tywin's voice for in, in Feast for Crows. They both call on Dad as this image of intimidation and, and power. And yeah, I think Clint absolutely nailed exactly what, what Tyrion's plan is. Like you were saying, Jeff, that he had this worked out beforehand. And he's going to go step by step to pry Janos open. And I think then Janos throws him for a slight like emotional loop he didn't expect by being so dismissive and horrible about the murder. And that gets Tyrion's dander up a bit. And he starts putting a little more investment in than he, he thought he necessarily would. And that's that contrast between what Tyrion does for personal and for business that will become so much of his story. 
And I think you see such a strong contrast here, as I was saying in Tyrion 1, between Ned and Tyrion, that George is setting up these two storylines as contrast throughout A Game of Thrones and The Clash of Kings, that Ned just trusted Janos Lint, because Janos Lint is the man with the job, so you trust him to do the job, because that's what Ned thought he had to do, and Tyrion is just so expertly prying him apart and then disposing of him in a way that, you know, I think you can overstate the moral distinctions between Ned and Tyrion and focus, maybe, maybe it's better to focus on just the procedural ones, just Ned... I don't think he has the sense of how to handle a subordinate like this. And that's not me calling Ned dumb or politically simple. I just think this isn't his style. And like, yeah, I think he doesn't he doesn't have lawyer instincts for the most part, I would probably say. Maybe when he's talking about sending out Gregor Clegane, as we were discussing with Stephen Atwell. But otherwise, he, I don't think he works like this. And once Tyrion has his info, I just love how he goes all in on contempt. He starts mocking the spear clasp and denying Janos' honor and just the, yeah, the great structure of the chapter when that bile rises to the forefront. But... Just as yeah, Janos keeps falling back on his connections and implying who he works for and who will save him, Tyrion's trump card is always dad. I am Tyrion of House Lannister, and someday if you have the sense the gods gave a sea slug, you will drop to your knees and think that it was me you had to deal with, and not my lord father. And that's what puts the fear in Janos' eyes, because he knows what Tywin Lannister does to the children of those who displease him. Ooh, so, yes. Yes. And, and oh. That's... That's always what backs Tyrion up, and just as Janos is ultimately a, a hollow suit because Joffrey and Cersei are never going to go to bat for him, Tyrion ultimately has his downfall because Tywin despises him and considers him the least of the Lannisters and will disavow him and betray him and send him to the wall at the drop of a hat. So I think while Tyrion does have his victory over Janos Slint here, and you get that great catharsis when Janos' Janus's arrogance immediately falls apart when he's arrested— you know, Tyrion himself is going to be arrested in front of everybody at the Purple Wedding and humiliated and brought low, and he's prepared to be sent to the wall in the same way Janice is. So he goes through his own downfall, and his power proves just as unstable. I think that the point that you made about how Ned would never really do this is really underscored by this notion that Tyrion also sends the six men on Janice's list with mm. Janice Slint on the summer's dream like that's another thing that that ned would never that it would never occur to ned to do because you know who are these people from Tyrion's perspective these people are people that he Tyrion knows he can't trust um and they're probably complicit in some way because they're i don't know mobbed up with <laughs> janos so fuck them the very fact that Janos is recommending them, yeah, is, is a sign for Tyrion. And for Ned, he would think more, but, but maybe they're good officers. They're good That's individual right. men that I can trust. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. it's just very different models. Well, I think it also like speaks to Tyrion's upbringing, right? He grew up in a place where no one trusted each other, right? He had a sister who despised him, a father who despised him. So Tyrion had to kind of learn how to read people and realize that he couldn't trust people that were ostensibly close to him. Ned's background is not like that, right? I mean, there's no real people that betray Ned or despise him growing up in his entire life. And then his underlings too. I mean, he's got people like Jory Cassell and Alan and all these people that are really, really good. He's got Maester Lewin. He's got He's got Roger Cassell. Like, these are just loyal, good bros, like, from the North. Like, this, these are all, like, the good people. Tyrion has conditioned himself to have a bit of skepticism about people and recognize that he, you know, needs to get rid of these people before they could potentially cause further issues down the road instead of, like, give them a chance to redeem themselves. Like, Tyrion's not going to let these people have the chance to slit his throat. Ned was shaped by the loss of his loved ones. Tyrion was shaped by his loved ones not actually loving him. Hmm. And I think oh. you can see completely different political instincts emerging from that process when you see them as, as hands of the king. And while Ned's uh, kind of downfall and crestfallen disillusionment is linked to how poorly the image in his head reflects reality, 
I think Tyrion's downfall is linked to how he gets caught up in in the the very system he's trying to change and and the very practices he decries. Because I think what really gives this chapter its depth for me is how, in isolation, Tyrion firing Janos is as unambiguous a fist pump moment as they come in A Song Mm -hmm. of Ice and Fire. Because he's so unpleasant and because Tyrion is so clever and artful in pulling it off and the scene is staged so well. But the victory is undercut when you look at it in context. There's that very key passage. He could not touch Cersei. He knew. Not yet. Not even if he'd wanted to. And he was far from certain that he did. Yet it rankled to sit here and make a mummer's show of justice by punishing the sorry likes of Jano Slint and Allardeem while his sister continued on her savage course. And I think this gets at one of the difficult questions George is posing in this chapter. Is incremental reform enough? Is hiring a new person enough? Is steering the ship in a better direction worth your time and effort if it's still visibly sinking beneath you? Or it's still heading straight at the iceberg? Like, on the one hand, as I said, Janos is not just an individual bad actor. He has systematically corrupted the City Watch. Removing him from power is a policy victory. On the other hand, you gotta ask if Tyrion has really changed that culture. Like, sure, Jocelyn Bywater seems a more admirable and honest dude on the whole than Janos Slint, but... As Tyrion says, Varys would have me believe that I have replaced one of Joffrey's men with one of my own. More likely, I have replaced Littlefinger's man with one belonging to Varys, but so be it. Like, Varys is given Tyrion just enough information to get one over on Littlefinger. I mean, Tyrion is proving himself to be a puppet as well as puppet master here, which undercuts a lot of what he's doing. Right. And as much as we support sending men like, you know, Janice Slynn and Allardine to the wall, we do have to like consider Jocelyn smiling at the idea of some extrajudicial killing of Allardine after the guy has ostensibly been granted, ostensibly been granted safe passage to the wall for his crimes. You know, you're, we do kind of like, yeah, okay, th- toss that motherfucker over the side of the, of the boat, fine, <laughs> all well and good. But at the same time, like in as you know, as Clint has talked about a, a lot here, the idea of guest writing about having certain rules and regulations governing certain rules and regulations governing social procedure and social interaction means that maybe tossing some guy over the side of the boat is kind of bad, especially when you promised him the wall, promised him the wall as, as much of a promise that is, right? I guess the the wall is preferable to being tossed over the side of the boat in the Northern Seas. I, I would, I'm just, just putting it out there. I'd probably go with the wall over the ocean, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you have, I mean, certainly you don't have the the necessary right to due process in Westeros. Um, and Tyrion theoretically could have, like the best, the best he could do in that regard is give him to Joffrey and say, you know, just as he did with that uh, captain who was going to pledge to Stannis, he could, the captain of the Whiteheart, was it? Yeah, yes. who was going to pledge to Stannis. Um, he could give him to Joffrey. But of course, Joffrey would look at this and go, so, I don't care about that. That's cool. Um, that's so not disloyal to me personally. Right. So <laughs> exactly. So um, that's not justice from Tyrion's perspective. So sending him to the wall would be. I agree with you, uh, Jeff. That you know, just tossing him overboard is you know suboptimal justice. I would think. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I guess we get we get by with what we can. I mean, we don't feel here. bad for him, right? But I mean, at the same time, like it it does like. There's there's the issue of reciprocity, right? If people are just constantly tossing aside norms and regulations, like ultimately that thing is going to come back around on you, and ultimately that sense of injustice that is surrounding some of the actions that Tyrion takes in A Clash of Kings does come around back on him when he's in prison falsely for the crime of murdering Joffrey at the end of A Storm of Swords. 
And he doesn't succeed in reforming the gold cloaks. Like Sir Jocelyn is fragged at the Battle of Blackwater. And mm-hmm. I think that represents a failure of just swapping out the head honcho to change institutional problems. As we can say Jocelyn's a better guy than Janos, but that doesn't change the fact that the institution is rotting. I mean, and Janos wielded power in his own right, but he was also a pawn for Cersei and Joffrey, and Tyrion knows he just still can't do anything about them. Not only that, but as George makes sure he has Tyrion say, he's not even sure he wants to. Because at the end of the day, if Cersei isn't regent, if Joffrey isn't king, then Tyrion isn't hand. Mm -hmm. They're the sources of his power, too. And this is the irreconcilable struggle that will bring Tyrion down. And yes, Clint says you can see that with the, the former captain of the White Heart where he just kind of has to give him to Joffrey's with keeping Joffrey distracted, like Joffrey is a wild dog. And that just so undercuts any attempts by Tyrion to do justice. And so with one hand, yes, he's ruling sensibly in a lot of ways. He's eliminating Janos Slint. He's ignoring Balin Swan's treasonous table talk and not just making an example out of him for making a joke. But on the other hand, he's feeding people to Joffrey, and he's allowing his clansmen to run riot in King's Landing, which is kind of played for a joke in this chapter, but... Like, that's going to lead to a negative reputation for Tyrion and his merry band of friends if he just is allowing them to do this. So, and if, so if Cersei and Joffrey are half the reason for the, quote, bitter taste in Tyrion's mouth, then you have Bronn sauntering in at chapter's end to provide the other half. And again, it's how casually and just cheerfully Bronn admits, yeah, I'd kill a baby if the price is right. Who do you think I am? And that just breaks Tyrion because that's when he realizes, oh, all I've done here is play musical chairs. I haven't actually changed anything. Being the best member of the family is great and all, but you're still in the mob. Is he that different from Jano Slint if he still has his own Allardine, as he says to himself? Or the Klansmen, just his own nicer version of the Bloody Mummers at the end of the day? Like, how much credit does he get for being pissed off at Janus about saying only some whore when Tyrion thinks to himself that sex workers can't truly love anyone? <laughs> does he really have a more advanced worldview than, than Jano Slint? That's why we call this episode The Butchers, with a plural, with an S, because Tyrion realizes at the end of this chapter, oh, I'm in that company with Janos Slint. What use is it making mid-level improvements if you're still wearing the boot, if you're still wielding that cleaver? I think you can see a real... We're seeing that that Tyrion is, is great at the micro, but when it comes to the macro, there's just certain obstacles and certain conditions baked into his position that, that make it difficult for him to do justice. But I think it's it's beyond that, it's interesting to, to zoom in on what Tyrion does have control over and how he does handle the changing shape of power. And I think that's where we get into the part of this chapter we all want to talk about the most, mm-hmm. which is, is Varus's riddle, the conclusion, part two of Varus's riddle. And it's it's interesting to open up the question of how we interpret it, especially in light of what just happened to Janos Slint as, again, like a case study in how this breakdown of power works. And this is especially what we wanted to have uh, Clint on to talk about. So I turn it over to you, sir. What do you make of the conclusion to Varus's riddle? Oh, so much, so much. Uh, so I think to, to really talk about the conclusion, you have to go back to the setup. So let's go back to the setup. You have a sellsword, one sellsword in the middle of a room being bid by three different people, being bid by the king representing the law and the power of the state, and then a rich man representing wealth. And then you also have a priest representing the gods or fates or however you want to look mm-hmm. at it. So who lives and who dies could depend on that sellsword's individual understanding of power but Varus reminds us in this chapter that it doesn't matter who that guy is he's waving that away because yeah there might be a guy who you know goes rogue and decides that um, what society believes doesn't matter but Varus's riddle is really about the choice of who lives and who 
who dies depends on society's collective understanding mm. as to where power resides. It's not just this one guy. This sellsword might be the most godly man ever, but if he believed that the masses of people would hurt him or his family for choosing to kill the king instead of the priest, it might actually influence his decision. So that's going to play into it one way or the other. So that's why it doesn't necessarily matter who this guy is. So thus, power resides where men, plural, believe it resides. It's not just an individual decision. And this idea is essentially a complete theory of statecraft and what I would argue is the central thesis of the series of A Song of Ice and Fire from a political philosophy standpoint. In my view, George here is speaking through Varys to state what he believes is the nature of power in a society like this. It's not about who has the legal right to rule, Stannis. Sorry. <laughs> it's not about that. Or who has the trappings of power or would, who would be the best ruler. It's about how people convey sovereignty through belief in that sovereign. Um, so if you think back at the beginning of the series, everybody agrees who has power. It's Robert. Everybody knows this. And then he dies. And the entire rest of the series so far is about how various factions think various other people should take over for him. And it's about that, that struggle. The idea of the riddle, it's a very simple philosophical concept, but it draws on a vast amount of real world political thinkers. Thomas Hobbes, for example, as a, as a natural rights philosopher and enlightenment philosopher says, he, he said that it is not wisdom, but authority that makes law. In the Hobbes, Hobbesian monarchical view, authority represents the collective free will of his subjects. If you've ever seen the cover of uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, it's a big king made up of a bunch of people. That's where authority comes from. Another natural rights philosopher who came later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, argued that the only legitimate source of power was the people themselves. And so that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is this sort of Machiavellian aspect, where Machiavelli argued Machiavelli in, in The Prince argued that ruler, rulers should go directly to the effectual truth of the thing, not the actual truth of the thing. So whatever people think is true of the thing, that's what you should care about. And so if you rub all those pieces together, you have Varus's riddle. You have the source of power being the people themselves, that people have to choose where to put the power by believing in that power. And that the ruler should be most concerned with maintaining his or her own legitimacy to retain that power. And that is a really powerful philosophical concept expressed in a very short way. Power resides where men believe it resides. Then you get the next part of, of this conversation where Tyrion's like, what the fuck? Are you just telling me that <laughs> the power is just a trick? Just a mummer's trick. And Vera says, yes, it is. It's a shadow on the wall. And this is a clear reference to Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, if you are a political science major, <laughs> you've read Plato's Republic a billion times. And I apologize, yep. but you're going to hear a little bit about it. But Plato's allegory of the cave, it's like the only good part of that book. The rest of that book can fuck off. Um, but <laughs> it's awful. Yes, Plato sucks. But Plato's allegory of the cave is really interesting. So the, in the allegory, you have these slaves that are chained in a cave, and there's a fire between 
or behind the slaves. The slaves have to look forward. They're chained in a way that they can only look forward. There's a fire behind them, and the fire is casting shadows on the wall. And then there are various puppet masters that pass in between the fire and the slaves and basically cast these shadows. And the slaves see the shadows, and to them, the shadows are the only real things in the world. And that's all reality are these shadows. And in Plato's allegory, he's making that um, that allegory about the nature of what is knowledge. Um, but Varus takes that and, and turns it on his head. It says so. In Varus is telling the people of Westeros are the slaves that are chained in the cave. The shadows are power, and he and the other people like Littlefinger or Illyrio Mopatis or whoever else trying to seat the various claimants are the puppet masters casting casting the shadow. And so they are the ones that are that are trying to get those people to believe in whoever they want the people to believe in. And so in this sense power in Westeros is like Tinkerbell in Neverland. You have to believe in it or or it just doesn't exist. You know, you have to clap or else Stannis isn't king. If you're not <laughs> clapping for him or Renly or whoever, they're not king. And they die. They wither and die in the vine. And you, so you can take this idea and you can apply it directly to the various claimants on the Iron Throne. You can look at this at all, almost like a presidential primary, right? So <laughs> this is not, this is not a, 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 a great analogy or a perfect analogy because there are certain <laughs> people who have to declare for one side or another, you know, they're vassal lords or whatever. But then there are other people who are kingmakers, like your Mace Tyrells and maybe your Robin Aarons or whoever who are not necessarily affiliated. And so if you look at that like a presidential primary, so if if you're uh, somebody like that and you're really concerned about the rigid application of the law and you think that that should control, well, Stannis is their guy, right? Stannis has, has the legal claim. And then there are people who care about who have the trappings of power, who are wielding those trappings, who is sitting on the Iron Throne as we speak, who has the crown in their hands, who is ruling in King's Landing. Those people will go for Joffrey. And then, I don't know, maybe somebody who believe in justice or honor or vengeance or who would be the best king <clears throat> would, be, <laughs> would, would vote for Rob. Right, like they would cast their lot with Rob. Or if you're just a fucking idiot who likes other idiots, <laughs> you might vote for Balon. But if, but for the people who think that um, it matters whether someone looks regal, someone seems like a king, then those people would vote for Renly. Renly is their guy. And so for me, Renly is Varys's riddle personified. He has no legal moral or policy claim to the throne but god damn it that motherfucker looks like a king and people believe he is and so he's a fucking king and it is as simple as that no more and no less i, I could go on but i think the endpoint discussion with king bran is relevant too In season eight you had two explicit references to Varys's riddle you also had Tyrion's speech at the dragon pit as to who has a better story than bran the broken um, i mean i agree I disagree with him that there I think that there are other people who absolutely have a better story, but he was at least making an argument. And so he was making an argument that because he has a better story, he should be the ruler. And if we take that endpoint as canon, and I, I do, and I know you guys do too as well, they'll have to do George will have to do something similar with Bran 
to get people to believe in Bran as a ruler. And maybe that's a speech by Tyrion. I don't know. Maybe it's an endorsement by various lords. It occurred to me that perhaps Bran will use some sort of magic to convince people to believe in his power, like a literal mummer's trick uh, to, to get people uh, to think that he would be the right ruler. In a way, it doesn't really matter, but I, the way that this chapter and Varys's riddle within this chapter is placed and how it keeps showing up and this concept keeps showing up from the very first chapters in the Game of Thrones through to the last chapter in A Dance with Dragons leads me to believe that this concept will be the ultimate determinator of who quote-unquote wins the Game of Thrones, who sits on the Iron Throne, and who will wield ultimate power when the series ends. Really well said, and I love what you're saying about driving at the effectual truth of the thing and how that gets to the core of what these characters are dealing with is wrestling with holding two things in their head at the same time, the reality and the presentation of the reality. And we've talked before about how it feels like Robert was split in two, this consensus was split in two, and you get Stannis and Renly, Stannis obsessed with the reality of the thing, and Renly obsessed with the image of the thing, and neither of them can quite square the circle because they're just perfect incarnations of those ideas. And as you say, a lot of it is just that that shadow on the wall, that idea you're trying to present. I mean, Stannis is claiming that what he's all about is, is the legal right, but that that wasn't his motivation when he turned on Eris in favor of Robert, as he himself admits. And as we've said before, and we'll say again, so much of what's actually driving him is very personal and emotional and about his brothers more than it is, first and foremost, a legal theory. And Renly, too, is, you know, he's he's putting forward the the image of everyone joining him deliberately, and some of them are. But as you also say, there's a lot of just feudal politics going on, and so much of it is timing. If Stannis had declared himself before Renly, the Stormlord's political situation would have been so different, and that could have had a cascade effect. And it's it's not about any one of these things. It's about people who can understand the interplay, and Varys clearly understands the interplay of, of the, the image and the reality and how you juggle them. And that's, you know, I think you're right that that's a simple concept that is nevertheless at the core of so much political philosophy and so much discussion about what what we agree to be power and i think i think you i think you make a great case that's the the thesis statement of the series when it comes to political philosophy i 100% agree and i and i want to thank you for bringing up Plato's Republic, which when I was a political science minor in college, was taught to me by a Hegelian philosopher, which was just oh, oh so much oh, no <laughs> yeah yeah wow that sounds oh. that's that sounds like someone denied that designed that scenario for you in hell. <laughs> it was the worst class I ever took in college. No, no joke. It was the worst fucking class. Maybe that's why I have a bad taste in my mouth about Plays Republic. But I, I do think like you're you're absolutely correct. I, I love all the examples you brought here, and I love the idea of it being a political primary, and of you identifying the different portion portions of the electorate, so to speak, that these different cast of characters and cast of kings rather are are appealing to. And and you know, I'll be honest, like I never saw Renly as the guy who is the actual person who people believe has the power but yeah you 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 make a great point i mean look at the amount of power this guy has amassed in a short amount of time granting that we you know em and i've talked about when we were going through a game of thrones that renly was likely plotting with the tyrells before the death of robert to do something politically whether it's to make himself robert's heir it was definitely to put marjorie in robert's bed i, I think like that that does like speak to something though about Renly that we have to ad admit here on the other cast podcast as as Stannerman, I guess at some level that you know this guy has a certain appeal to people and part of that appeal is simply that he looks powerful people believe in this guy 
There's a momentum, but on the other hand, there's also a weakness because it goes out like a storm. It right. passes away. It goes out like a light because there's nothing there. So you get that great line from A Feast for Crows. Renly, who was he? No one cares. No one remembers. Right. It's uh, it complementary strengths and weaknesses. That uh, Stannis's kind of inability to form a large coalition is a permanent weakness. But Stannis has a core group that will never desert him, hell or high water. And so you get these these competing d- definitions of power that we see you know, come into well a literal clash over the course of this book. Varys would look at this right, and he would he would concede immediately that Renly has no claim to the throne that is recognized by the law or you know moral justice. But he would say, "Who the fuck cares?" Right? He has a hundred thousand men in his army, or roughly that. I don't know. Maths are not my strong point. He has the support of what two of the three, two of the seven kingdoms. And and he's also got something that Stannis will never have and Joffrey will never have, and it's that people like him. And being likable is, you know, it's actually a good trait in being a ruler. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that matters. And so from from Varys's perspective, it does not matter, and it should not matter that Stannis has the right or that Joffrey is sitting on the right uh, on the throne. It's that wait a minute, this guy has the most people believing in him, so he might actually be. I don't, and I don't know. I don't like. We can talk about this later. <laughs> I don't know whether at this point George had the idea of the Blackfires and Young Griff when he was writing this. I I really don't know that, but I think that if you were going to step into Varys's shoes at this point, he would probably think that. Of everyone, Renly might be the guy who is the right person. I don't know, or at least, at least would be uh, among the five kings of Westeros. I just thought it was interesting, you know, and that Varys gives Tyrion this lesson, um, and not Ned. And I would be interested to hear why you two think that is. I think by the end of a Clash of Kings, when we have Danny's House, the Undying Vision, we have this idea of the Mummer's Dragon being shown showing up here, and then we have Vars here talking about you know power being a Mummer's trick, so to speak. So you have that that language connection here, which I think is what is at stake for what for why Vars is informing Tyrion and giving Tyrion this life lesson, this political philosophical lesson for him that he's shaping this guy to realize that hey you know power could be shifting all the time like wink wink nod nod in just a year or two from now i'm going to be bringing over the golden company with the dothraki and at that point in time young griff is going to be the guy who's going to be the most powerful because i am shaping this massive narrative around this guy and that power is going to reside with him because he seems like the guy who's most in charge he's got these likely in the winds winter going to have the largest army he's going to have the support of the faith he's going to have dornish support potentially the support of many of the the vassal lords for Mace Tyrell who likely turn on Mace Tyrell and turn on Tom and Baratheon too. That's why Tyrion's receiving this lesson. And that's why Ned never got the lesson from Varys. I agree. And I think Varys just knew Ned would not be receptive to this way of thinking about power. And he thinks Tyrion would be. I think if Ned heard this argument, he would reject it outright. And Tyrion is, while well, as Clint says, he scoffs initially, he and he doesn't quite learn the lessons from it, as we'll talk about he nevertheless soaks it in as kind of an argument that resonates with his experience and it makes him very curious about Varys and he wants to learn more. But of course, Varys doesn't tell him. And as you said, Jeff, there's that great moment when his eyes are glittering with something that's not laughter because like that's the one thing you can't do with Varys. It's the cardinal sin is asking what's behind the curtain. Hmm. He's asking what's the answer to your riddle? Who are you? What's what's your decision if you were the sole sword in the room? And Varys refuses to go there. He will a little bit later on when they're talking about how uh, how he was castrated, but... 
that's that's kind of the, the sacrifice Varus kind of gives up and what leads to, I think, some of Varus's sadder moments are when he reflects on how you can't really be an individual person, live your individual life if you just give yourself a wholesale to these questions. And Ned is someone who, at the end of the day, cares more about family than power. And Varus, I think, for a variety of reasons, just in terms of how his life has gone, has just made the opposite choice. And I think he recognizes in Tyrion someone who might be more on his side of the equation than Ned's. I think it might be part of what's going on there. That makes a lot of sense. That's why I asked you guys. Aw, <laughs> oh, shucks. On to talk a little bit about some foreshadowing groundwork here. I think we get a little bit more Harrenhal stuff here, right? Indeed we do. Immediately after the chapter in which Catelyn lays out the legend of Harrenhal and the curse of Harrenhal, we get arguably our first present-day incarnation of the Harrenhal curse with the prompt downfall of Lord Janos Slint. And this is indicative of how George handles the Harrenhal curse in general, where there's a clear, plausible, grounded, non-supernatural explanation for what's going on here in terms of Tyrion's motives and Tywin's motives and how Janos has conducted himself. There doesn't have to be a curse, but the fact that it happens right after... Catelyn give this whole speech about what happens to anyone who claims Harrenhal, and then this happens to Janos Slint, adds to the kind of aura of unease around, surrounding the uh, the castle. So we'll get more into the nature, the double-sided nature of the Harrenhal curse as we go through Clash of Kings, but I think this is where you can sense how much fun George is having with this location. Because as you say, Jeff, this is, this is a fun chapter in a lot of ways, despite the heaviness of the themes in question. George is enjoying himself, and you can see him really digging into how multi-layered Harrenhal is as a setting. Yeah, I think like we're getting the mythology aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire really built up in A Clash of Kings, which does flesh out the world a lot and the world building. But I think it's also too, like the plot senses too. We have Littlefinger later saying like, Harrenhal is cursed. I don't want that castle, wink, wink, nod, nod, nod. I really, really want that fucking castle. Give me that fucking castle right now. But at the same time, he he kind of is the audience avatar for one hot second where he's like, isn't that place cursed? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it is fucking cursed. Janice Lynn is dead a little bit later in the story Bruce Bolton will eventually be dead later in the story Littlefinger will be dead later in the story but the Harrenhal curse is real guys is what I'm trying to say Tywin Gregor Amory Lorch Vargo Hote oh, yeah it's and they're not just dying they're dying horribly in humiliating ways and personal ways it's like it's it's all bad so you guys are going to get me in trouble with this because um, I have a, a tattoo on the guns of uh, Lyanna Stark <laughs> at the tourney of Harrenhal. And actually, you know, I had to like tell my partner, like, uh, I'm getting a tattoo of a castle. And she was like, which one? And I was like, Harrenhal. And she's like, wait, isn't that cursed? And I was like, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, you're going to die mysteriously. <laughs> if she listens to this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's fine. It'll be everything. Will be fine. We're sorry for you, Clint. It was nice knowing you, yeah. man. We really appreciate you coming <laughs> on this episode. We can get you now before the curse actually hits. Thank you. Thank you. So we did have a long discussion about shadows on the wall and what that actually means. But you know, there is some actual physical shadows on the wall killing people, right? Yet shadows can kill, as Varus says. Uh, is there a place where this happens in the narrative about a shadow coming out and allegedly having the form of Stannis Baratheon, allegedly murdering, slash assassinating, slash killing Renly Baratheon. It's, it's all alleged, of course, but we do see some proof of that at Storm's End. Some alleged proof at Storm's End. Eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, something I love is just when, like, lofty metaphors become very, very literal. That's just something I really enjoy, and that's, that's uh, something we get here, where we get the emphasis of the shadow specifically on the tent wall rising up to kill Renly and then and then dissipating. And yeah, I think that's that's a way of, of emphasizing what Clint said about this being the thesis statement that George is tying this all together, that even the magic, the otherworldly supernatural intrusion 
carries the nugget of this idea with it. So we hear the mention of the, the, the sudden plague of holy men on the streets of King's Landing here, and we're going to see more of them as we go through Clash of Kings. There's that great scene of the one street preacher going on about corruption, foul, loathsome, and he's pointing at the comet and talking about the fire coming to cleanse. And of course, all this leads up to the uh, the sparrow movement come a feast for crows. And, you know, George doesn't get into the religious elements in their own right a lot in these early books. They tend to just be representations of political or magical trends. But it, it's it's important to have these guys, I think, hanging around Tyrion's chapters because Tyrion doesn't have much to do with the whole magical religious tide of this book that you see on Dragonstone and Winterfell and uh, with Danny out in Karth. And those those kind of tie him in. It's like you have this kind of like apocalyptic tone going through a clash of kings that's starting to build up and this is that's the element i think where Tyrion storyline gets involved in that is these these holy men on the corners preaching about the apocalypse it's fun to me that george sets this up all the way back in a clash of kings and again we're not sure whether george had this whole idea of the sparrows moon erupting in a feast for crows or whether that was a later invention on george's part what he's actually talked about in the past is how he plants seeds in the ground and lets them grow up here i think is a the plague of holy men is a seed that george has planted in the ground He's going to end up utilizing it in a really interesting way. And I can't wait till we get to a Feast for Crows and talk about the High Sparrow because that is one of those seeds that I think was really instrumental in making A Song of Ice and Fire as depthful and as interesting and intricate of a book as it is having the rise of religious radicalism and a <sighs> Protestant Reformation, as George talks about, but he's totally fucking wrong about that, uh, coming up at the end of uh, towards the middle of, of A Feast for Crows. Tyrion's failure to act about the holy men or even about Balin Swan's joke also foreshadows that Tyrion pretty steadfastly refuses to internalize the lesson of Varys's riddle uh, until at least a dance with dragons, if at all. Um, throughout this book and the next book, Tyrion's power is extremely precarious and he goes out of his way to piss off Cersei and other small council members and then disregards the whispers he hears about commoners and other lords alike insulting him and blaming him for various problems. He doesn't do shit about any of that, doesn't do the things that Machiavelli tells him he should, and it absolutely burns him later in the trial. And, you know, you guys should have me back on for the <laughs> Tyrion's trial, by the way. Yes. I think it takes him until a dance with dragons until he starts really thinking, oh, Daenerys has this power because people believe in her and we need to deal with that in a real way. It's interesting that Tyrion understands that the treasonous table talk with Balin Swan isn't something Balin should be punished for, but he doesn't take the deeper lesson that how people are talking and thinking about you are, are important. That's something that Tyrion doesn't seem to get. And I think, of course, that's rooted in his, his shame about his stature and his appearance and all the terrible things his father was slamming into his head all through childhood that Tyrion assumes he can't be loved, so why would he try to make people love him? That's impossible. Mm -hmm. Why would he expend any energy on that? Because he needs to do that. And something Stephen Atwell, our most recent guest, has talked a lot about and something we'll be talking about is the moments in which Tyrion could have spun his legend and could have made himself a more popular figure. Like in this chapter, how about, you know popularizing the fact that you got rid of the baby killer Janos Slint, the guy who just walks into brothels and does whatever he wants to the small folk there. Tyrion could have built himself a legend out of this, but he just, that's a political blind spot that he has, that he doesn't think of, of the possibilities that way. So he he understands the kind of the surface level, don't don't be an asshole, like don't <laughs> mutilate people for <laughs> making a joke, but he doesn't, he doesn't deal with the deeper problem of there being a joke to tell in the first place, if that makes sense. It it does make sense. And also in A Clash of Kings too, the, one of the things that the holy man says is, you know, the demon monkey man is there running the king and, and being bringing corruption to his court. And Tyrion, instead of being like, oh, this is a way for me to kind of change the narrative, I don't have to be the demon monkey man, as, you know, Emmett, you pointed out in the past. He could have been the half man, right? The underdog war hero who gets rid of corruption and is, right. is you know, 
has been looked down in all his life just like you. I mean, it's, there's a fair amount of bullshit in that image, but it's an image he could right. spin much more effectively. But he doesn't. He doesn't spin it. He just he take he internalizes the hurt and the insult in it. He's like, yes, I'm the deep and monkey man. So fucking what? Like that's not the best response for Tyrion, the smart political pragmatic actor, as he's so alleged to be in this series. A Twitter friend of mine, Rohan, pointed out to me that this chatter this chapter foreshadows um, some statements from Melisandre's chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Melisandre and Varys are both two very similar characters in how they look at power Mm. and how she looks at Jon Snow's failure to learn the lesson that Varys teaches here. There's a quote, perhaps he did not think himself worthy of the King's Tower, or perhaps he did not care. That was his mistake. The false humility of youth, that is itself a source of pride, a sort of pride. It was never wise for a ruler to eschew the trappings of power, for power itself flows in no small measure from such trappings. That is almost exactly what what Vera said right there. And later she goes on. She says, Melisandre made it a point to keep a pair of guards about her everywhere she went. It sent a certain message, the trappings of power. Again, it's, it, it's almost exactly porting power resides where men believe it resides directly to this interaction between melisandre and Jon snow and i think it really sets up that sort of that dynamic and it it is not only so powerful or so important a lesson to learn that it literally kills john uh at the end of uh dance with dragons um but it 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 really speaks to how important this nature this this notion of the effectual truth of the thing the trappings of power um that is seated in this chapter that is a brilliant connection, man. I, I had never seen that before, but I'm seeing that now very, very brightly in my eyes. I, I You know, Melisandre does a great job of inspiring a lot of fear in people, and, and that is a form of power as one of the things that Janice Lynn talks about in this chapter, right? It's like, oh, Allardim is fear. He's not loved in the streets, but he's feared. He's not. He's, he is feared for just being brutal, Like, but that's essentially the his power stemming from his, his violence, the way the affinity of violence that he has. Melisandre does a really good job of doing the trappings of power as he puts so well. She's wearing all red. She has red hair. She looks intimidating and terrifying. She speaks with the voice of God, the, the God R'hllor, and, and people believe that she actually is speaking for R'hllor. And that's, you know, gets her into a lot of trouble as she end up, ends up misinterpreting a lot of visions from R'hllor prophecies from R'hllor, something from the other side at some point, like giving her some prophetic power. But people think that she has all this power, so they end up putting a lot of her, a lot of their trust in her because she is displaying her power in such a vivid, visceral way. Ultimately, though, she is saying to John, John, you know, she's seeing daggers in the dark. She's seeing skulls around John Snow. She talks about that Melisandre chapter, but she's not able to break through to John because John is John is too stark, man. Like he's too much of the guy who looks after Ned Stark and looks at the guy who sits down with his servants and eats with them and hangs out with his his people that he's he's his underlings he doesn't like keep a lot of pa- trappings of power around him and that was at some level that was some of Ned Stark's downfall in a Game of Thrones and it's a lot of what uh, of, uh, and it's a lot of Jon Snow's downfall in a Dance with Dragons it would be so simple if Melisandre was just a charlatan, but she's not. Right. She also is right about a lot of things and shows genuine magical power a lot of things. But also Lightbringer is clearly a fake. And a lot of what she says is she's clearly wrong and confused about. And that's, again, that shifting nature between the, the curtain and what's behind the curtain and how the, the two affect each other. And it's, it's a, really impossible to set up a, an exact rigid relationship to it as Melisandre ironically assumes that she can do. 
Yeah, and I think it would be so simple if Varys were just simply a power-hungry jerk who's trying to see, you know, some some random person on on the throne, but he's not, right? Like he actually on some level I think um does care about who is who is a good ruler and how to, how to have the best ruler. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving on to our discussion portion of the episode, we want to touch on one more angle on Varys' riddle, and that is how, of course, how he answers it in the form of young Griff in A Dance with Dragons. So I thought we could talk about how our perceptions of Varys' <laughs> riddle change knowing that. What do we think about that as an answer from the man who asked the question? Does it sync with our own understanding of power? Does it make us think less or more of Varys as a whole? So I, th- I think it's important that when we're talking about this, we ground the discussion about Varys' relationship with young Griff and Tyrion's role in young Griff's story in the, at the very end of the published narrative, namely in the Dance of Dragons epilogue, where after Varys has crossbowed the ever-living fuck out of Kevin Lannister, he begins villainously monologuing there where he says, Aegon has been shaped for rules since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms as befits a knight to be, but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes. He speaks several tongues. He has studied history and law and poetry. Septa has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisher folk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers and mended nets, and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So I love that Vara's monologue in A Dance of Dragons is one of my favorite passages from all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think like what we're seeing here is the riddle being constructed around Young Griff. Because like look at the image versus the reality of Young Griff as we encounter him. So we meet we meet Young Griff in Tyrion's third chapter from A Dance of Dragons, and we've last see him in in the Griffin Reborn from John Kynes' perspective at the end of A Dance of Dragons. He's got Raleigh Duckfield training him at arms, but then when he's out on the sorrows and the stone men jump his ships. He freezes, and then he reads and he writes, but he is really bored by Half-Maiden Halden's lessons to him all board the Shy Maid. He speaks several tongues, but then everyone is speaking for him in Selhoras and Volantis. He's been trained to the faith, but he doesn't really demonstrate any overt religiosity. He's lived and worked like a small folk, of course, all under the supervision of John Connington and all of this, his backers from five years old and onwards. He's been hungry, hunted, and afraid. And this is just total bullshit. Like, there is no indication that this was ever the case for young Griff. And even if it was the case that he was, you know, hungry, hunted, and afraid, it was all done in a very sterile, almost classroom environment, right? You know, Varus's supervillain monologue is all bullshit. But that's kind of the point, right? As Clint put it really, really well in the main section of the podcast, power resides where people believe it resides. And if Varus can craft a really excellent narrative around young Griff, then why can't Young Griff be king? If Varys can make this kid out to be Rhaegar's son when he isn't, because he absolutely fucking isn't, then he'll do it. If Varys can swarm Young Griff with a massive army of Reachmen, Dornish lords, Golden Company knights, all these people that can he could bring to the cause, then yeah, he kind of looks like the king, right? That's essentially, Young Griff is the ultimate answer to Varys' riddle, in my opinion. He looks like the king, right? So that makes him the king in Varys' mind. I, I think that one thing that is conspicuously absent from uh, Varys's supervillain monologue, as you so nicely put it, is some sort of legal justification. He never says, "Oh, and by the way, Aegon is is Rhaegar's kid." <laughs> uh, um, you know, like Aegon is actually the the rightful ruler, not Stannis, not Daenerys, whatever. It's Aegon. He he put talks about all of these things that are about the trappings of power, that are about 
um, the effectual truth of the thing that, you know, these are great narratives, things that I would want to put on a campaign poster, uh, things that I would want my surrogates to talk about if I were running for something. But it's not about, you know, some sort of policy aspect. It's not about some sort of legal uh, entitlement to rule. It's about, you know, hey, this is about constructing a narrative. It's a really great question as to whether or not this affects how I view Varus. I think the answer is is yes to an, to a certain extent. So Varus in the show, right? Like young Griff, Griff is not there, and so Varus in the show is about is much more sort of one dimensional, and he is really is more about the you know who is the rightful ruler because. Um, this particular person would be the best ruler for the for the realm or whatever it is. <laughs> Here, that's obviously different, but I, I think that deep down, or based on my reading of Varus, and obviously Varus is extremely opaque and difficult to to read, um, but based on my reading for Varus, he honestly believes that Aegon, young Griff, would be best for the realm. In addition, of course, to the fact that he's a Blackfire, <laughs> Varus is probably a Blackfire, and that's that's all true as well. Um, I, I I think that you can't necessarily separate the two, um, the the two sort of altruistic and um, selfish mo- motives when it comes to Varus in the in the books, and I think that makes him a fascinating character. In addition to the to to all of the other things that I've talked about about his general motivations, but I I, I think he buys his own bullshit <laughs> even knowing that it is bullshit right that the fact that it is bullshit does not bother him the point is just about how do we set up this sovereign that will a that will achieve the ends that i want and do the best they can for everybody else and i think that syncs with the blackfire reveal because that's what damon blackfire was about that's what the man with the perfect flat stomach was about the better man (laughs) the man who got the sword that's what it all was about and varus is like self-consciously recreating that he's looking back historically at these images that work and saying i'm going to make my own perfect little puzzle piece scenario of all these images and that's going to be my ultimate con my ultimate trick and the problem isn't even that that's the incorrect way to look at it that power because that is i think a very well-founded way to look at power the problem is is that it's so vulnerable to hijacking and he doesn't seem to get that he he because he thinks that the policy basis is him like that's what's going (laughs) to be the that's what's going to lead young griff in terms of what he actually does day to day is varus i assume thinks he's going to be making a lot of those decisions and young drift just has the central moral compass and good image to keep everything going but varus doesn't seem to realize that he's left this kid alone for years with a lot of other influences John Connington in particular is like on the edge in so many ways and despises Varus <laughs> and it has the potential to, to yank that whole coalition in a different direction. Or it doesn't account for young Griff himself having ideas that might cut against Varus's grand plan or put himself in more risk than Varus would like to think or say marry Ariane Martel instead of Daenerys. <laughs> Varus is, is not taking the whole pawn sometimes have their own ideas thing into account. He thinks he can just construct young Griff perfectly as this image and whether the man underneath fits up to it, I mean, it's you can understand a, a reading of power that says it doesn't matter, but it's 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 still going to matter in these these moments in which Young Griff seizes his agency back, and I don't feel like Varus has a plan for that. 
we see this will coming into action at several points in the published narrative. Like, oh my God, like this is like the fifth iteration of this plan at this point. Like first, as Tristan Rivers talks about it in the, the Lost Lord chapter, like first we were supposed to meet up with Viserys Targaryen after they had gotten the Dothraki together. Then he's dead. So that plan's in own ruins. Then we were supposed to, she was supposed to take ship with us to Pentos. And then she ends up, turns up in Slaver's Bay. And now that plan was in ruins then. Now she's supposed to come with us all the way to Volantis and meet up with us here. She's not here. So sh- what do we do now? So I guess we're going to go for Westeros. So I think ultimately what we're seeing is that Varys's riddle has a lot of applicability to the characters in the series. And yes, there is a lot of wisdom in it. But I don't think it ultimately pans out for Varys. I don't think that young Griff is going to be sitting on the Iron Throne for more than a week, two weeks, a day, maybe an hour or two. I don't, I don't know how long actually young Griff will be in power. And that shadow on the wall is going to shift directly to Daenerys Targaryen in lieu of young Griff because Danny has dragons. And young Griff doesn't. The weakness of Varys' ability to keep paddling is eventually he has to put his cards on the table. Young Griff is the moment where he has to lay out what his actual plan is, and that makes him very vulnerable, not only, you know, literally to Daenerys and her old crew, but ideologically, because now the faults matter. Now Varys isn't someone just picking around the edges of someone else's master plan. Now he has to do it. It has to be more than a shadow. It has to be a thing that sits there for decades and then propagates a new thing after that. And that's where kind of Renly fell apart, and I think that's where you're going to see Young Griff fall apart too. And yeah, a lot of that, that, that passage about how much Varus's plan has shifted is really where I think you see the case for Clint's argument that George is speaking through Varus a lot of the time, because that's where George says, Varus is me, a gardener who's not fully in control of his narrative, <laughs> and who sometimes gets lost down rabbit paths with characters who turns out to have minds of their own, and his master plan falls apart. That makes sense. So is this the part in the podcast where we talk about how this chapter confirms that Varus is a merman? So thanks for listening to the Not A Cast <laughs> podcast. We want to thank Clint for coming on. Oh, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. It's been a real blast having Clint on. I Thank you, Clint, so much for joining us. Where can we find your stuff and tell us more about some things you have coming up down the pike for yourself? Once again, I really appreciate both of you having me on. I've been a fan of the podcast since the beginning. Hey-o. Once again, my name is Clint. Um, you can find me on my website at lawsoficeandfire.com or at Westeros Law on Twitter or Clint W on Twitter if you want to hear me talk about baseball and um, American politics and all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't recommend it, quite frankly. <laughs> but um, I'm also going to be joining Stefan Sase on the Boiled Leather Audio Hour next month to talk about a lot Sweet. of the same things that we uh, were talking about today. So as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to send a shout out and thank you as always to our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord uh, Clint Esquire, Wolf in the West, that sounds familiar. <laughs> the Wolf of the West! I wonder who that fellow might be. <laughs> can, we, can we do that from here on out and say, Wolf of the West! Wolf in the West, as loud as possible. Sir Sorsadelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. 
Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybolt, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, and our newest High Lady, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Thank you to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Sandy the Dragon. So, join us next week as we return to Dragonstone for one of the greatest point-of-view chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Gosh, I'm so excited about this. Sir Davos Seaworth, his very first chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And we'll be joined by yet another great guest, His Grace's High Inquisitor and Stannerman Supreme, Sir Frank B. That's going to be quite the party. Frank makes us look positively reasonable when it comes to talking about Stannis. And <laughs> Davos, even aside from any questions of Stannis, Davos is one of the, the great characters in the Song of Ice and Fire, one of the great POV characters. Frank is like the, the Rocky Four of not a guests, <laughs> which is the best Rocky in my view. That's staggeringly accurate, Clint. Well done. Yeah, yeah thank you. Ah, that's, it works on so many levels. It's so, it's so deep. <laughs>